Check out the 7th Fall for Dance North Festival from September 11th to October 29th. The festival's collection of original live streams will be presented from Toronto but can be streamed from anywhere, and it includes new works from Guillaume Cote, Azure Barton, Mtutuzili November, and more. Explore the season at ffdnorth.com. friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Courtney Escoyne. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we will discuss dance star and activist Josephine Baker becoming the first Black woman to be buried in France's Panthéon, the country's Tomb of Heroes, which is a many-layered story, actually. We will get into the history-making New Deal for Broadway, which is an industry-wide agreement on comprehensive reform recently released by the advocacy organization Black Theatre United. And we will talk about another history-making moment from a different corner of the dance universe, the first same-sex pairing on Dancing with the Stars, with Dance Moms alum Jojo Siwa partnering with a female pro. So lots to talk about, but before we get into all of that... Drum roll, please. I'm not. I'm not going to provide one because that would be bad audio. Bad audio. Just okay, imagine hypothetical. It. Hypothetical drum roll, please. We have a launch date for the long-awaited Dance Edit Extra. Hooray! Woo-hoo. The first official episode of our new premium audio interview series will drop this Saturday, September 4th, on Apple Podcasts. And just a quick refresher: the Edit Extra is a subscription-based series that's kind of a companion to this podcast. So every other Saturday, you'll get in depth interviews with the dance artists who are shaping the headlines that we talk about here. And the first Edit Extra episode features the inimitable James Whiteside. And unsurprisingly, if you know literally anything about James, it is a super good time. Um, you can find more information about the Dance Edit Extra at thedanceedit.com podcast, or you can go right on ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Just search for the Dance Edit Extra to pop right up. All right. Now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which actually covers two weeks this time. We're playing a bit of catch up after our mailbag episode last week. Uh, So say you think you can dance alum Serge Onik passed away at age 33. The dancer, teacher and choreographer competed on Say You Think in 2014 and later assisted with choreography for Dancing with the Stars, worked with U.S. figure skaters on their routines and taught ballroom at Broadway Dance Center in New York City. Uh, He also appeared as a dancer in In the Heights, which released this summer. Just a really shocking, surprising bit of news. I mean, so shocking. And it's, he worked in so many different, as you're saying, so many different corners of the dance world. I think all the headlines were saying, you know, so you think you can dance star, Mm. but no, I mean, resident choreographer for the Nick City dancers working with figure skaters, as you were talking about, and he was just this beloved teacher. It's, it's profoundly tragic. There are no good segues here, but at least this next headline is good news rather than sad news. Mm. Aliyah Ramirez, the 14-year-old dancer from Indiana who went missing in April, has been located safe in Florida. Um, a huge swath of the dance community rallied around Aliyah's family when she was reported missing. There were teachers and fellow dancers who were just vigilant about spreading the word across social media, and their campaign actually helped get Ramirez's story featured on NBC's Dateline. Thank goodness. Thank goodness this is the way this story ended with Aaliyah safe and sound. We, we still don't really know what happened here, but Ramirez's aunt and grandmother have been arrested in connection to her disappearance. 
And as we cautiously but optimistically approach the fall performance season, an increasing number of performance venues and dance presenters are requiring some combination of vaccination, testing, and masking for audience members. Uh, the League of Chicago Theaters, a coalition of more than 65 indoor venues, and a number of Seattle organizations, including Pacific Northwest Ballet, are requiring proof of vaccination for audience members with proof of a negative COVID test being allowed in certain specific cases. Meanwhile, 14 theaters in the Boston area will accept either. Uh, all require masks, and all are mirroring what we've already seen going on and going into effect in New York City and elsewhere. Um, I feel like my inbox over the last couple of weeks has been full of similar announcements from companies all over the country. Yeah, totally. New normal. Um, you know, we actually did a poll in our newsletter and on our social channels a few weeks ago asking if the Delta surge has made people more hesitant about attending in-person performances. And a clear majority of respondents said, yep, mm. which is totally understandable. I feel the same way. So hopefully these types of requirements will at least offer a little bit of reassurance for those of us who are feeling anxious about going into theaters again. Yeah, because I know I certainly don't want to keep adding to the dance magazine timeline of canceled performances due to COVID. No, I'm no. still adding to it. It's been Ugh. a long time now. So really. um, here is some news that if you are like me and not a thousand percent up to speed on the musical theater scene, you might not have been aware of. But if you are a thousand percent up to speed, you are kind of already knew is happening. There's a Mystic Pizza musical happening right now. It's been in the works for a little bit. In fact, it debuted yesterday at Maine's open air Ogunquit Playhouse. The new show is set to a collection of songs from the 80s and 90s. It's a jukebox musical. It features a cast of Broadway standouts, and it boasts all women in the lead creative positions, including choreographer Liz Ramos. I mean, is it heading to Broadway? We don't know yet, but it's a good start. Yeah, keep an eye on it. Uh, and further musical news, uh, NBC's next live musical production has found its Annie, 12-year-old Selena Smith, who previously performed as young Nala in a national tour of The Lion King. She'll join Harry Connick Jr. and Taraji P. Henson for the Sergio Trujillo choreographed production of Annie Live, which is set to air December 2nd. Yay, that's awesome. Big congrats to her. Here is some hopeful news out of Aspen. A new ballet company has kind of risen from the ashes of Aspen Santa Fe Ballet, which dissolved its performing arm earlier this year. Called Dance Aspen, this new contemporary ballet troupe was founded by several former ASFB performers, and its first program, called The Pieces Fall, will premiere September 17th at the Wheeler Opera House in Aspen. It'll feature works by Ben Needham-Wood, Danielle Rowe, and Penny Saunders. So definitely an encouraging development. Yeah, and it's like great to see them using those connections of contemporary choreographers that they already have in place and the existing mm -hmm. infrastructure that's been built in Aspen. So, you know, sending all the best. Positive vibes. Hell yeah. Jazz hands. <laughs> Spirit fingers. <laughs> Um, the Great Artistic Director Shuffle of 2021 continues with the news that Mark Brew will be stepping away from his position as Artistic Director of Axis Dance Company. The integrated company's last performances with Brew at the helm are slated to take place in October and will also mark its first in-person performances since 2019. Axis alum Nadia Adame will succeed Brew, who has held the position since 2017. Yeah, I mean... Gosh, so much leadership change in dance right now. It is sort of reassuring that 
they already have a successor in place. She knows the company well. Yeah. There won't be too much instability during the transition. And the fact that the new director is a woman is also exciting. Love to see it. Speaking of which, here is some news that broke just before we sat down to record. Francesca Harper has been appointed artistic director of Ailey 2. Courtney's doing a chair dance right now. I'm smiling so big, I can't even tell you. <laughs> Harper danced professionally with Ballet Frankfurt and on Broadway and has taught and choreographed extensively. Her resume includes works for both Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre and Ailey 2, as well as her own company, the Francesca Harper Project. She is not only a former Ailey School student, but also the daughter of the late Denise Jefferson, who led the Ailey School for decades. And her appointment comes after the firing of former Ailey 2 director Troy Powell last summer for alleged sexual misconduct. So this is the beginning of a new chapter for Ailey 2, and Harper could not be more deserving of this position. It just fits. Those lucky dancers. This is, as I said, can't stop smiling. It's such great news. Just congrats, (laughs) Francesca. Uh, And our last headline item today is an obituary for Jeffrey Stephen Watson, the influential Baltimore-based ballet dancer and educator who died earlier this summer. Uh, Watson was a graduate of Point Park University who danced with the old Baltimore Ballet and on tour with Aretha Franklin before joining Dance Theatre of Harlem in 1986. Uh, Later in his career, he returned to Maryland, where he danced with Maryland Ballet and taught for Baltimore City Schools. He was such such a big part of the Baltimore dance scene for such a long time. So in our first discussion segment today, we are going to talk about Josephine Baker, the hugely influential performer whose accomplishments even today remain widely underappreciated. Baker was born in America, but became a huge star in France's music hall scene in the early 20th century and was later a French resistance agent and a civil rights activist. She died in 1975, but she's in the news right now because it was just announced that her remains will be laid to rest in the vaunted Pantheon in Paris. Baker is the first black woman, the first entertainer, only the fifth woman, period, and one of very few foreign-born figures to receive that honor. So it sounds like a righted wrong that Baker would at last be recognized in this way, a sort of poignant, pointed gesture. But the story is, is a bit more complicated than that. And we also just wanted to take this chance to talk more about Baker's life and dancing, because, again, they don't often get the spotlight they deserve. Yeah, so uh, Baker was born in the United States in 1906, uh, got into performing as a fairly young teenager, actually, and was in the vaudeville circuit at age 19. She moved to Paris and ended up becoming a star of the scene there. She danced for the Folie Bégère very famously. Um, She renounced her United States citizenship in 1937 and became a French citizen. But as Margaret mentioned later in life, she was a huge proponent of the civil rights movement in the United States. And she was very open about the fact that a huge part of the reason why she relocated and why she remained in France was she felt much more welcomed there as a black performer and much less discriminated against as a black woman in France as compared to the United States. And she said as much in interviews that she did pretty much right up until the end of her life in 1975. 
Now, there is a lot of the thing she tends to be remembered for is the banana dance that she did. Um, mm-hmm. And there has been like some criticism over the years of, well, she was just playing into stereotypes of Black performers that were very common in vaudeville at the time. She was just playing into that, which some people look down on. Uh, others make the argument that she did it in a very knowing way, in a way that mm-hmm. was kind of pointing so out aware. like hey, this is this is the stereotype. I'm going to play into it, but you know that I know that this isn't what it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very complicated history and story surrounding her. Yeah, and also a complicated story in terms of this more recent news about mm-hmm. her burial at the Pantheon, which, pardon my horrendous French accent throughout this episode, by the way. <laughs> so the, why did it take so long for Baker to earn this kind of recognition And why did it take a campaign led by a white man, because it was the writer, Laurent Cooperman, who led the campaign to make it happen? Those are some questions people have been asking, and they tie into a larger conversation about what types of people and what types of work are seen as valuable, quote unquote, by the white European establishment. And that, of course, is analogous to a conversation that's also happening in the United States. So in both of those environments, there's been a longstanding bias against the performing arts and especially against performers of color Mm. in which their work hasn't been seen as as serious. It hasn't been seen as deserving of a high level of respect, despite its often enormous cultural impacts. And and it, it gets even more complicated, too, after the news about Baker broke. Some journalists were saying that one of the reasons that she made the cut, so to speak, at the Pantheon is because she was not French-born. So she isn't perceived as a threat to white French standards of beauty and performance. She sort of existed outside of them. And Mm. that's perhaps the reason why even people like Marine Le Pen, the extreme far-right politician, was on board with this idea. So while this Pantheon burial is historic, it might not represent sort of a great step forward in racial equity for French people of color, which is also something to think about. Well, and I think there's also like a questioning of, you know, there's what, like 80 people buried at the Pantheon. So like, this is huge news. But I think there is this question of like, okay, this is a way of propping up this like, sort of egalitarian ideal that uh, France and particularly Paris likes to hold up of like, well, color doesn't matter, Uh, Mm -hmm. which in a lot of ways is actually a very old fashioned view to us in the United States. So kind of the idea of like, well, by making this move, it's propping up this ideal that doesn't actually play out in modern French society, particularly for artists. I mean, we've talked a lot about what's been going on at the Paris Opera Ballet over the last couple of Mm -hmm. years, Mm -hmm. for example. I mean, Josephine Baker deserves all the flowers, so I don't neither of us mean to yes. take away from that in any any regard. But I guess the hope is that her Pantheon burial sparks further moments of reflection and, and reevaluation of the way our cultural history is told and who's placed at the center of it and how we assign value to artists and their contributions. And not just in Europe, but of, of course here too, which is actually not a bad segue into our second segment which is about another major piece of news concerning the recognition and inclusion of Black performers. That is the recently announced New Deal for Broadway. So after a five-month summit with a whole bunch of major Broadway leaders, I mean, theater owners, producers, unions, creatives, everybody on all sides, the advocacy organization Black Theater United released this New Deal agreement last week. 
and it outlines extensive, wide-ranging reforms, some of which can be implemented before Broadway even reopens in a couple of weeks, and some that will be rolled out over the next few years. And the changes address issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, access, and belonging, and they're mostly focused on Black theater professionals in particular, although the idea is that over time, the commitments outlined in the New Deal will lead to greater equity and inclusion for everyone in theater. So let's talk about some of the most noteworthy reforms here. Yeah, so this is a lengthy document that was put out. It's about 18 pages, but it is freely available on the internet. And we super encourage everyone to go check that out. Linked in the show notes. But getting into a bit of a broad overview here, a lot of organizations and folks have signed this, including the owners and operators of all 41 Broadway theaters, the Broadway League, Actors' Equity. So while these pledges aren't legally enforceable, the idea is that by signing to this, uh, they're going to try to hold each other accountable for these new measures. Um, And we are looking at reforms and pledges that impact productions basically from beginning to end, from the makeup of creative teams to the use of sensitivity readers for new scripts to the language used to describe vocal requirements and casting calls to having conversations early in casting about actors' comfort levels with alterations to their natural hair textures. So we are looking at a commitment to never having an all-white creative team on a production, full stop. You know, having racial sensitivity coaches for shows that deal with issues that have racial sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Also, three of Broadway's big commercial landlords have committed to renaming their theaters after Black artists, which is, you know, it is symbolic, but... That symbol matters because Broadway in and of itself in a lot of ways is just a big symbol as well as big business. Mm -hmm. There's other things like, you know, no more unpaid internships, which we don't even need to get into why the reasons that's super gatekeepery. And just, I mean, there's just, there's so much in here. Something that's worth noting, uh, there are a number of different unions that are not currently signed onto this, notably including the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society. Laura Penn, the director of that, uh, said that they were committed to the principles, uh, but they opted not to sign because they felt that its scope was beyond the purview of what they do. I think there's a hope that more unions and more producers and more creatives are going to sign on to this as time passes. Over time. Yeah. So uh, that that whole list of reforms, it all sounds hopeful and positive and, and necessary, so necessary. I, I think I'm such a Debbie Downer today. I do think it's worth wondering aloud about how these reforms are going to play out in the current incredibly unstable Broadway environment. Like, mm. for example, there is an impress- unprecedented number of plays out right now by Black writers, which is fantastic and very much in line with the New Deal's goals. But are they essentially guinea pig shows, like ways for producers to test the waters as they try to figure out whether people will feel safe returning to theaters and try to figure out how to bring in different types of audiences? And if they end up failing because of the pandemic, will that then make it harder for people of color to maintain these footholds that they've secured? So to get into like nerd world a little bit for a second, oh, please do. that's the same question that me and friends of mine are asking right now with, as you're hearing this, uh, Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is coming out this weekend, the first Asian-led Marvel movie. It's huge. It's such a big deal. But it's also coming at a time when a lot of people are really nervous about going to movie theaters. So if this film doesn't perform to typical Marvel standards at the box office, is it going to be written off as a failed experiment in producing an Asian-led film rather than a 
casualty of the pandemic. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that is a completely valid concern that while COVID-19 has created space and the conditions for us to stop and reevaluate theater, we are also still living with COVID very much present in our lives. And so... Mm-hmm. Is there going to be time allowed for this kind of work to actually really take root? Yeah, totally. All right. To bring things back around to the positive, I do think it's it's fantastic that Black Theatre United is getting everyone to agree to these reforms now in a public way, because mm-hmm. often diversity initiatives are some of the first things to go when finances get tight. Like that's true well beyond Broadway, of course. But this is a way to sort of ensure that positive change is a priority no matter what this next year or so looks like financially. And also just seeing that, like, it's kind of at first I was like, oh, okay, like, they're going to be saying they're hiring DEI officers and that's going to be it. And it's just mm-hmm. theoretical. And then once I actually read, like, oh, this is concrete. Like, these are mm-hmm. actual actionable steps. This isn't yeah. just theoretical. And also, like, people are actually signing on to it. It's yeah. huge. It feels very real. Yeah. And an excellent model that hopefully other parts of the performing arts world can tap into as well. All right. So finally today, we want to talk about some news that I think a lot of us have been expecting for a bit now, although that doesn't make it less exciting. Dancing with the Stars is going to feature its first same-sex partnership this season. Um, Dance Moms alum and social media star and hair bow queen Jojo Siwa, who revealed earlier this year that she is pansexual and dating a woman, will be paired with a female pro on the show. So for context, this comes after Strictly Come Dancing, which is the BBC cousin of Dancing with the Stars. They paired boxer Nicola Adams with Katya Jones last year. Strictly is also going to have an all-male couple in its new season. And actually, a same-sex couple won the Danish version of the show back in 2019. So yes, Dancing with the Stars is a little bit late here. But still, this is big, interesting news for multiple reasons. Yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me about this really is that Dancing with the Stars is so, for lack of a better term, like it's so accessible, like it's right there. You Mm -hmm. can just turn on the TV and it's there. And I think it draws viewers from a lot of different places because they draw their stars from so many different arenas. And JoJo has a really strong following and also a really young following. Mm -hmm. And... Like the thing that I keep thinking about is that, you know, like when you're when you're growing up, right, like you see movies and television shows and there's like the scenes of like school dances or like weddings and people are dancing and it's like romantic or it's dramatic or like whatever the, you know, whatever it needs to be. But like you you think about it, right? Like you see like, oh, I want to get dressed up and go dancing with someone I really like. And like you don't have to go that far back for there to never be any same sex representation in that. Or if there Mm -hmm. is, it's like, oh, they're dancing outside the gym in the parking lot. And it's very cute, but it's also (laughs) extremely sad because it's that way because like homophobia exists. They can't be in the. Yeah, exactly. (sighs) So like I just like the thought of kids like either seeking out Dancing with the Stars or just happening to turn it on and seeing Jojo Siwa with whoever her female pro is. And that pre- being presented as like a normal thing that mm-hmm. is equally deserving of being celebrated and seen, not something that you need to be awkward about. It's just queerness as fact, like and not just for queer kids, but like also for kids who aren't in the LGBTQ community, just seeing this presented as a normal thing like that is game changing like this is why representation matters, because it yeah. shifts culture and it shifts the environments that kids are going to be growing up in so that hopefully they feel safe enough to be able to come out and they feel safe enough to be supportive allies if they are straight. And 
this just it means so much and i didn't have jojo siwa becomes a pansexual icon on my 2021 bingo (laughs) card but you know what i'm here for it let's do it bingo yeah i know that was the thing that actually when i heard this news that made me a little bit teary too the thought of these like six to ten year old siwanators because that's absolutely what they're called what Yes. Yeah. But all of them coming to Dancing with the Stars for the first time and just seeing the same sex pairing as a normal part of the show's fabric. That's just part of what Dancing with the Stars is to them. That is such a beautiful thing to think about, as you much more articulately explained. I mean, zooming out a little bit here, this is very much in line with what's happening in the larger ballroom community. Um, There have been a lot of debates about... I mean, rethinking the ways gender is built into technique and built into the rules of competition. It's, I think it's worth noting that last summer, the National Dance Council of America, which is the official governing council of traditional ballroom dance in the United States, they redefined a ballroom couple not as a man and a woman, but as a leader and a follower, regardless of the sex or gender of the dancer. Mm. So this is not like a blip or a publicity stunt. This is a, a sea change that's happening all across the ballroom community. Um There's also another conversation happening here about JoJo's prior dance experience and whether or not that gives her an unfair advantage, which I personally find intensely annoying. I don't know about you, Courtney. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know about it because it's also that thing, right? Whenever it's like a figure skater or a gymnast, like Mm -hmm. those same conversations crop up there as well. Totally. I mean, I don't know. For starters, she does not have any ballroom training, which is kind of a big part of the, the equation there. But it's she's far from the as you as you said she's far from the first dancing with stars contestant to have a dance or dance adjacent background and if you look at how those contestants have fared in the past they didn't all kill it like heather morris who has a much more extensive dance resume than jojo does she only made it a few weeks on the show so Hmm. anyway okay enough with that mini rant um (laughs) I think Jojo actually only found out who her partner was on Tuesday of this week. And we audience members are not going to find out until the show's premiere on September 20th. But I have to say I'm personally more than a little biased in favor of Dance Magazine's current cover star, Britt Stewart. I had the same thought I want it to be Britt so badly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what we're really saying here is make sure you tune in on the 20th to see her ballroom debut. It's going to be it's such a big deal. It's so great. (laughs) And it's so overdue. Yes. All right. That's it from us this week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.